This is episode 332 with Trail Runner Magazine columnist, running coach to some of the best trail runners in the country, author, and former Trail Runner of the Year, David Roche. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and my singular goal is to help you improve your running by getting stronger, racing faster, preventing more injuries, and achieving more of your goals. I'm a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine, a 239 marathoner, and creator of the Performance Training Journal on Amazon. You can learn more about me and strength running at strengthrunning.com. And if you enjoy this show, please support our partners who are offering you some great deals on amazing products that will help your performances and overall health. First is Element, a delicious, sugar-free, high-sodium electrolyte mix. It's perfect for endurance runners who are sweating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and because of that, can be susceptible to imbalances. My favorite flavor is watermelon salt, but citrus salt is making a comeback. Now, you also didn't hear it from me, but these can be used to make a very tasty, sugar-free margarita, or the next morning to help you feel better if you've had too many of those margaritas. Electrolytes play a key role in helping you avoid dehydration, dizziness, cramps, and tiredness, especially after long runs or workouts. And Element is used by the military, law enforcement, professional sports teams, and they're the official hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting. Get your free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning, and they'll let you try every flavor before you commit to what's your favorite. That's drinklmnt.com strengthrunning for your free sample pack. We're also supported by AG1, the best-in-class greens superfood mix. I try to have one serving of AG1 every day because it's my one-stop shop for probiotics, vitamins and minerals, greens, prebiotics, and whole foods-sourced micronutrients. There's also micronutrients like ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps you handle stress in a more productive way. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that ashwagandha helps you during periods of high training load, likely by allowing you to recover and adapt to those stresses a little bit better. AG1 helps support gut health, the immune system, and provides a nice shot of energy. It's recommended by professional athletes and has over 7,000 positive reviews. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system, and do so conveniently with one scoop of AG1. Now, they're making it easy by giving you a free one-year supply of immune system-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com Jason, and you'll be able to pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's drinkag1.com Jason to claim your free goodies. All right, my conversation today with David Roche was originally published on episode 276 of the podcast. I think this conversation is so valuable that I want to share it again. The concepts that David and I discuss are critically important for any runner's overall development. And while we always talk about endurance, we rarely talk about other physical skills like power. Let's do that today. David is a two-time USA track and field trail national champion, the 2014 U.S. Sub-Ultra Trail Runner of the Year, and a former member of Nike Trail Elite and Team Cliff Bar. 
You might have read his work that he publishes regularly on the Trail Runner Magazine website, or perhaps you've read his book, Happy Running, that he co-authored with his wife, Megan. You can hear me talk about that book with David's wife, Megan, in episode 82 of the Strength Running Podcast, or David and I discuss everything about long runs in episode 155. Now, David isn't just an incredibly talented trail runner. He's a wonderful writer and a coach who works with a wide variety of athletes at his coaching company, Swap Running. With his legal background as a recovering lawyer, David is able to clearly explain some pretty difficult concepts, which is just why I wanted to have him on the show today. Our topic is power, what it is, why we want it, and how to get it. David also contributed his favorite injury prevention strategy to our little black book of recovery and prevention that you can get for free at strengthrunning.com slash elites. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with David Roche. David, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Such a huge admirer of yours and your podcast, which, if listeners don't know, is at the number one of the charts all the time. Jason's just out there crushing it on the national and international level. So it's super, it's just such an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate that, David, even though right now you are trending one spot higher than me on those charts. But that, <laughs> oh, means, that means I'm in good company. <laughs> Oh, well, I, I don't know. It's kind of, it's like such a nice time to be on the podcast because it's the only time I'll ever have bragging rights um, over over you on that regard. So um, yeah, just huge fan all around, Jason. Love what you talk about with training, life, everything else. Well, the feeling's mutual, David. I uh, really enjoy what you do and what you put out there into the world. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because of exactly that. You've been talking about this topic of power pretty regularly over the last, you know, maybe six months, eight months, nine months. And, you know, I've, I've seen you incorporate this into your own training a little bit that you've shared on Instagram. So I just thought it would be really interesting to kind of get our heads on right about this topic of power for endurance runners. You know, most of us runners, we think that we're participating in an endurance sport mm -hmm. and while I agree with that, I've also heard you call running a power sport. Can we maybe start with what you mean by that? And then also just a simple definition of what you mean by power. Yeah. So I think one of the hardest parts about running training, and we talk about this on our podcast all the time, is that some of the frameworks for thinking about athletes, particularly elite athletes, which then trickles down to everybody else, 
is that runners are a cardiovascular system on sticks. Like we don't even consider how, um, you know, the heart and lungs incorporate through the cardiovascular system to get to the legs in these massive power generating centers to actually translate to speed. And I think in that framework, we're missing out on the fact that mechanical output, which we often shorthand as power, but is a little bit different concept in the context of what we're actually measuring is the limiter for a lot of runners, particularly non-elite runners. And that gets back to the mistake I think that can be made in that when systems trickle down from the very best of the best, often those athletes have zero mechanical limitations. Uh, Their VO2 maxes are through the roof. They're at the 99th percentile in that. Um, Their body's ability to transmit power is never going to be the limiter for them until maybe they get into their 40s. And as a result, they barely need to reinforce these metrics that most of us need to be thinking about constantly because that mechanical output will form the ceiling from which our aerobic system can adapt. So essentially the power that we're talking about here is your body's ability to transmit force in a per stride basis, um, often limited by mechanical factors, but not always just that. It basically incorporates everything that goes into being a runner that I'm sure we'll get into on this discussion today. Yeah. So if I'm understanding this right, power is essentially the strength of your muscular contractions and how much force those contractions are essentially putting into the ground, because that's usually what happens when we run, right? We we have this powerful muscle contraction, we're running along, and that transmits a lot of force into the ground, which then some of it comes back as um, force that we're able to use in our stride, some mm-hmm. of it's wasted, but that's essentially the definition, right? Essentially, yeah. So we're incorporating, and there's some great studies on this. There was one in 2018 in the Journal of Biomechanics that gets into the um, exact specifics of it. And if you look at it, there's so many variables, but I think that they can largely be summarized into the neuromuscular system. So the nervous system is often neglected, um, how you actually transmit signals from the brain, which can be improved very rapidly. Um, The biomechanical system more generally, things like form and how uh, the actual interaction of Uh, your leg with the ground. Um, And then things like muscle fibers and basic contractions that you describe. And then even cellular level things like protein expression. Um, You know, uh, just essentially you can go down the list of physiology and it all gets incorporated into this. And even when we're talking about longer term aerobic processes like that you might experience in a marathon, essentially you're just seeing this with a much larger denominator. Um, so the mechanical limitations that an athlete faces, it just becomes paramount. And I think basically every coach sees this intuitively. We're not just talking in physiology terms here. There's a reason that almost every coach that watches a lot of athletes progress ends up incorporating more and more strides in their athletes' plans as they get farther into coaching. The reason is you start incorporating them and you see well, what the fuck? This athlete's progressing so much more than all of the aerobic variables initially predicted. And essentially that's just getting back at this mechanical metric um, that we might call power on this particular podcast, but um, essentially just means how can you make each stride correlate with higher output, farther, you know, covering more grounds and ultimately going faster. Is that what you mean by mechanical output? Is it essentially, you know, the the force that you're transmitting into the ground and then therefore how far you're traveling with each stride? Yeah. I mean, while in the biomechanical literature, and I'm not a biomechanics specialist by any means, so I need to have that as a disclaimer. 
it gets immensely complicated. Like if you look at that 2018 study, you read it and you're like, oh, so this would be a multivariable calculus equation where you need to go past Z. <laughs> you know, you'd get farther and farther along the list of variables you would need. Um, it becomes like really convoluted in the sense of like what the actual equation looks like. Um, in practice, it just means, hey, how much can each leg transmit with each stride? Not thinking in a fatigue framework, which is I think a lot of running training is focused just on fatigue and fatigue processing. That lactate goes up. How do you shuttle all that lactate out of the system? How is your how are your metabolic variables able to burn less glycogen and be more efficient? Um, and more into, okay, that aerobic framework that we usually think of is operating within a muscular context. And that's why we say running is a power sport. Because as soon as you lose um, focus on that muscular context, it can lead you down really strange paths that don't work as well. Um, I mean, on the most extreme example of a strange path that doesn't work as well would be trying to solve this type of equation by reducing body weight, which is a scourge in running community, especially in places like colleges where people have disordered eating. And what that loses sight of is, yes, that might mean that your body needs to put out a little bit less power to translate to speed. Um, for each individual athlete. But that's incredibly short-sighted because you're also reducing your ability to put out power more and more and more. And those things stack up on each other over time to where eventually, even if an athlete, there's an anecdote of someone having a little bit of success initially by doing something to their body like that, it always ends in a crash and burn cycle. It's because this power metric, whatever we want to call it, um, is paramount. And as soon as you have the aerobic framework being all you focus on, you're just losing what makes you the strong athlete that can progress long-term. Yeah. And it seems like the, the fatigue issue of this is, is the aerobic side of things. It's yeah. let's not get tired so that we can keep running fast, but to be able to run fast, you have to be able to output a lot of power. Am I getting that kind of right? Definitely. Like maybe even a, a simpler way to think about it. Um, and we have so much great data on this from our team over time, from pros and everybody else, is if you take an athlete and have some sort of measurement of the maximum sustainable speed they can get in 30-second intervals, and you correlate that with their lactate threshold speed or their marathon speed, you'll generally see percentages for each individual athlete that stay relatively steady over time. Um, those percentages might shift a little bit as you get more endurance and you might get closer and closer and be able to compress those zones, which is good. But at the same time, at some point, your ceiling is going to be, or your floor is going to be capped by your ceiling and they kind of move together. Um, and that likely all gets back to this variable, though there's some cool studies we can get into later that have some interesting theories of specifics. Um, so <laughs> what that means in practice for an athlete and what we mean when we're saying think about the power framework is keep developing your ability to put out a lot of freaking power or speed or whatever you want to call it um, in the context of things like strides, um, like your velocity at VO2 max, these types of variables that might never be limited for the superstar genetic outlier um, due to their natural ability are almost always going to be the limiter for most of us much sooner than we actually realize they are. And you know, there's some wild studies that get into just how quickly these types of interventions can work and maybe some of the mechanisms behind them. I think it's really interesting to look at this from not an exercise physiology perspective, but just the perspective of, of a running coach, because I'm sure you've heard this too. A lot of athletes will say things like, 
you know, it wasn't my lungs, but my legs gave out first. And I just yeah. wasn't able to keep going, even though aerobically, I was just fine. Is this an example of that, of this kind of phenomenon happening out in the real world where you're not really tired, your legs feel, you know, like you can keep running, but, but like you, they just start yeah. failing you? Yeah, that's a complicated question because um, Dr. Marius Backen, who I love to read about with training theory um, and has been one of the people that has publicized a lot of Norwegian training principles, he would say that what we think is a speed limitation is almost always actually an aerobic one. So it goes the opposite way in what we're actually seeing are aerobic limitations. And that's the complex thing. I would mostly agree with that, especially in long distance running, that for an athlete at a given moment in time, so if we just take a quick snapshot of them right now, the aerobic side is the most important for them to um, you know, be able to perform in a marathon at that day. And when they think their legs go out, hey, it's probably aerobic system. It probably has to do with your metabolism and bonking and things like that. But then when we zoom out over multiple training cycles, the limitations that they're experiencing that make their aerobic system work harder than it has to ha might have mechanical origins. So in the, you know, as you progress training cycle to training cycle to training cycle, if you're aerobic system is adapting in a context of mechanical um, issues. So like if your max power is reduced, your easy running, because we know it's connected to that max, uh, will be less efficient. As that gets less efficient, your aerobic system might be adapting what feels at its max level. It'll actually be maybe 70 or 80% of where it could be. And if you start to snowball that over the course of time, you start to see someone regress. And maybe this is most obvious in athletes with age. Um, so, you know, with age, mechanical output is one of the first variables to go. Meanwhile, our aerobic systems can improve into our forties and beyond. Um, but as that mechanical system starts to, you know, wear and tear a little bit, lose a little bit of its output, um, what the aerobic system is able to translate to in terms of speed goes down, even as like an athlete's aerobic ability may objectively improve in the lab. Um, and the point being, even though we always see that in aging athletes, we also see it in younger athletes that let these limitations become a part of their training. And so what Megan and I have done with coaching is just focused on, okay, if these limitations are there and we're thinking about long-term growth, we're going to have a problem because the aerobic system that we're trying to develop with all those easy runs, which is the most important part of training, will just be less and less efficient. And eventually you have an aerobic system that writes all these checks in a musculoskeletal system that can't cash them. And that's the ultimate nightmare. I love that analogy. David, I feel like I am experiencing this myself. I, um, I just turned 39. I'm not training competitively anymore, although I'm uh -huh. still running six or seven days a week. I still do a long run. I still do strides. I still do strength training. I still do a workout every week. But yeah. everything is just so scaled back to a very non-competitive level for me. And I've found that as I've lost strength and power, it's made everything else much more challenging, even though I feel like I've mostly maintained, you know, a lot of my aerobic fitness from, you know, when I was yeah. younger and training a lot more. And so it's just interesting sort of me kind of talking about this, but then also me viscerally experiencing <laughs> it, you know, when I go out to, you know, uh, to go do a hill workout and I'm like, wow, these hills are just not as fast and strong and powerful as they used to be. And, and I just don't have that strength anymore. And it's just really fascinating to experience it. Well, I mean, I think that that's one of the coolest parts of all of this. And maybe right now is a great time to take a step back for our listeners that are like, what is he even talking about? It sounds like he's just trying to touch on things without getting too deep. Um, one of the reasons that I'm talking this way is, like I said, 
I'm not a biomechanics expert. I'm a running coach. So I'm coming out of this with a lot of, you know, accumulated anecdotal data, reading all the studies, working with, you know, my wife and co-coach Megan is super expert in this field. Um, but the reason that it's so relevant for each individual, um, and I think so, um, available is that we all experience it usually much sooner than we think. Um, almost every athlete who's in their even late twenties can think back to a time that, Hey, the actual max output came a little bit easier. If you were racing yourself in a 30 second hill stride, something like that, you might be like, you know, when I was 21, I still had it. And this is a 25 year old talking at that moment, you know? And so me in my thirties, like I feel the same thing you do. And it's something I've had to constantly touch back on myself. And it's one place where as a coach, being a runner yourself is so valuable. It has nothing to do with performance and, and how good someone is or whatever, how what do they do in a race. It has to do with knowing viscerally what you talk about within studies. So um, I would urge everyone, as we're talking about this subject, to really think about that, to think about, okay, zoom back to maybe earlier in your running career, how that has changed. Um, and could you have some low hanging fruit here that are really easy to grab? Um, because that's the wildest thing is some of this is really easy to grab. There was a, um, a 2018 study in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that did just two weeks of uh, power introduction through speed training, through 30 second intervals. Um, it found a 3K performance improvement of around 5% in trained athletes from that intervention. Um, and there's a bunch of studies that mirror that. And so the cool thing is, okay, that happens initially. What happens when you keep reinforcing that longer term? And what we've seen in coaching is you can harness those to then strengthen the aerobic system. So that's that might be that 5% might be a low hanging fruit that doesn't continue. But once you do that, you get a stronger aerobic system. And then the aerobic system helps you get better at the power generation. And it feeds back and feeds back and feeds back. And you get the snowball of fitness rolling downhill that can last really long. And so the place I'm most proud of as a coach is not taking the 25 year old super outlier professional and having them have a good race because often I'm like a random number generator could do that. It's when an athlete is 45 and competing on the international level. And I'm like, that's fucking cool because that goes against some of the core tenets of physiology that we might be taught. And where does that happen? I think it happens at this discussion about, you know, mechanical output. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, is it also true that your mechanical output or your power is much more easily detrained than something like your aerobic fitness or endurance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably gets back a little bit to some of the baseline reasons for all this. So, sorry, I always come prepared. This isn't off the top of my head for, for listeners. I always come prepared with studies when I talk to Jason because he's so smart. And whenever he talks to me, he plays a little bit less smart than he is. So uh, to challenge me, which I love. Um, but there was a 2018 <laughs> Thanks, study. <David. laughs> oh, I mean, everyone that's listening to this already knows that you could lecture me on all these subjects, which it's just an honor to be here. So thank you. But there's another 2018 study, this one in physiological reports, which might be the coolest in this field. So it did a very similar intervention as the one I discussed before with 30 second intervals, but this was over the course of 10 weeks. Um, and okay, that's great. They saw similar improvement in trained runners. It was a little less, but you know, you're starting to see this uh, mirrored across a lot of places, but they did a really cool wrinkle in this study, which is they, when they were testing, um, in the middle of the study. And then at the end of the study, they did one trial fully fueled and then one trial in a glycogen depleted state. Um, and within the glycogen depleted state, they didn't see the same progress. 
the progress didn't happen at all um, relative to glycogen depleted state at the beginning of the trial. And so the authors couldn't exactly pinpoint why that was, but it leads to some of the explanations for how this might detrain relatively rapidly. So what they saw is that the protein expression in the muscle fibers was totally different. So um, in slow twitch muscle fibers, there were these really big changes that explained why athletes would get better in a field state. But in, in an underfield state, your slow twitch fibers are more depleted, your type one, your body starts calling on more of your fast twitch fibers. And those fast twitch fibers, while they saw changes, didn't see any change in output. Um, so these variables like protein expression um, and other neuro nervous system related and nervous system related variables that are associated do regress relatively rapidly. But then you hit the worst part of all, which is physiological inertia. So with age, everything this is all starting to worsen. Our our peak power, if you want to look at it within other contexts, happens in our early twenties, and the regression process starts much sooner than you think. And if you're a fan of other sports, you can see this at, in play. In the old days, they used to think baseball players peaked at 32 or so, and they used to give them big contracts at that point. And they've since learned, hey, if you give a baseball player a big contract after age 25, buyer beware, because that's when the most likely the power starts to decline slightly um, in those athletes. So runners are facing that too. And so once we don't reinforce it, those you know things like muscle fiber exp um, you know expression and protein expression within muscle fibers start to go down and then the physiological inertia takes hold. So I view running as like, okay, we're not just fighting the inertia and trying to get stay at a baseline. You can actually improve it, but you need an overarching focus on it. So when we say running is a power sport, it's actually not, it's an aerobic sport. But the reason we say that is because we want to shock athletes into thinking, okay, what do I need to do to actually improve long-term after maybe in a closed physiological model, I shouldn't be improving anymore. Um, and so I think that's the magic of coaching is like, we've seen, hey, you can actually do this. You just have to get a little bit creative. Yeah, a little creative, a little strategic and thinking <laughs> a little bit more outside the box than might be necessary. Um, it does sound like mechanical output and power is, is somewhat related to VO2 max. Can you speak to that? And maybe also just give a definition of what VO2 max is so our listeners are we're all on the same page. Yeah. So essentially VO2 max, um, you know, so a lot of what we're talking here with like 30 second strides or whatever. And when we're talking something close to max sustainable or output using like long distance form, whatever you want to call a stride in your terminology, anything where you get close to peak max speed, basically we're saying that's not involving the aerobic system whatsoever. We're just kind of leaving that to the side. It's slightly different energy generation processes that I don't need to get into. Um, but Power just isn't at this max level. It's also in an aerobic context. Like we need to think about how this translates in the more aerobic context. And what we've seen, at least in our data, and I think in a lot of the studies that on speed work that show tons of progression at VO2 max, um, is that this is the place where power changes are the most apparent. Um, so what VO2 max is, is just your aerobic capacity of how much ox when your oxygen curve peaks what is your total oxygen consumption at that point? Um, because eventually you can keep putting out more power, but you're not using more oxygen. You're starting to get into more anaerobic energy processes. Um, so the reason that's significant is not to raise your VO2 max. The reason it's significant is because the amount of output you can put to do at that point will have the best correlation with other largely aerobic power outputs, even if those are very slow, like marathon or whatever. So your velocity at VO2 max will have a higher correlation with your velocity at lactate threshold, which will have a higher correlation to your velocity at aerobic threshold than your velocity at 
like all out 800 meter dash. Like that's just slightly different energy processes um, that we need to consider. So that was all a long way to, way to say of, let's take a step back and look at some of the studies. So I've already said the 30 second intervals, which are above VO2 max, basically the athletes in those studies are sprinting. Um, but you also probably have heard of things like Tabata intervals or basically any interval protocol you'll see in a study. Often they, co- they coalesce around VO2 max. And those studies almost all show improvements. That doesn't mean we should be doing those types of workouts because what the mechanism there probably is, is the same as the studies that are doing the 30 second intervals is that these athletes are going relatively hard, building their power in a way that allows their aerobic system to fully express itself. So over the course of a six week study, you'll see progression. So the reason VO2 max becomes so important is that that's the highest level of still largely aerobic output you can do. Um, and it'll then correlate with everything else. So you have the very top output, which might be strides or things like that. Then you have the very high end output, but that's not like, um, you know, balls to the wall anaerobic, which might be around your VO2 max effort, which you don't need to do much of. And then you just feed it in with as much aerobic work as you can go full Norwegian out there and just throw as much intensity controlled training as you can against the wall. Something you said earlier that I really liked was that, you know, all of this power happens in an aerobic context. Yeah. And, and I think that really sheds a lot of light on this issue of, you know, a lot of runners coming to me, and I would say this was probably a little bit more common in 2015, 2017, around those that time period, where folks just wanted to do Tabata workouts. And, <laughs> you know, they always point to those studies saying, hey, look at all this improvement. These are runners who went and did a Tabata protocol for four weeks or six weeks, and all these numbers that we care about as endurance runners go through the roof. So shouldn't (laughs) I be doing these workouts too? And and I think that one line that you had from earlier helps explain why you shouldn't, because all of that power, all of that mechanical output, if you want to see improvements in a race environment, it has to happen within that aerobic context. So if, if you only do the Tabata sprints, you're going to get better for a couple of weeks and then it's going to trail off and you've essentially peaked and tapered and then you sort of come back to baseline, right? Yeah. And you're getting better for the wrong reasons. Um, so essentially what I'm trying to say is that approach that you might see in a study is shortcutting what we're already talking about with, but you can get it in a well-balanced aerobic system. Maybe the best is the Norwegian systems that I've been talking about. So for a 30,000 foot view of what a Norwegian approach might be considered, though it's different and debated everywhere, um, would be a large quantity of easy work where you produce very little lactate. Um, A substantial amount of threshold work where you're doing intervals, but they're very intensity controlled wouldn't be what I'm referring to as mechanical output stresses in this context. Um, But the wrinkle of Norwegian training that you don't really hear talked about much is that most of those systems also include things like um, with the Ingebrigtsen's training that's been put online, 20 by 30 to 35 second hills fast each week um, in fast strides and things that do build their mechanical output to let it feed into the aerobic framework. Um, so basically the, the, the big conclusion is that those studies are seeing, hey, if we just nail this mechanical element over and over and over again, an athlete's ability to put out power will get better. That probably relates back to the things, the fundamental changes that can happen on the muscle fiber level those changes all happen relatively fast and then cap out. Like you said, you're essentially peaked. If you don't start feeding them back into the aerobic system, an athlete's going to regress. And that's why 
all training systems nowadays at the very elite level are called pyramidal, where you have most of it is very easy, some of it is moderate, and a little bit is hard and fast. That little bit that is hard and fast is all we're talking about here. Um, and whereas the Tabata type things say, hey, let's do a lot hard and fast, more polarized style structure. And those adaptations happen quick, then they stagnate. So the point is you need to get that hard and fast feeding constantly back into the low-level aerobic system because that's actually what improves long-term. You're not fighting physiological inertia. You can get better and better and better, not just into your 30s, but also your 40s, 50s, and beyond. It almost seems like if we were to create this spectrum of effort with on one side, you have recovery running zone one, super easy. You're, you're out there with your dog having fun and you get some friends, <laughs> you're going on an adventure. You're not worried about pace. And then the other hand, you have max effort, hundred percent maximum sprint speed type of work. Yeah. It seems like most runners effort should mostly stay away from the middle of this spectrum and have most of your training be pretty easy. I think the threshold or tempo, lactate threshold, that kind of work is like maybe in the middle of one half of this spectrum. And then you have a lot of work on, on that really fast, high mechanical output end. And you try to stay away from too much work in the middle where you're doing longer reps at VO2 max and just some of those brutal workouts that, you know, I think as someone who started running, you know, in the late nineties, like that was what we did so often <laughs> all the time. And now that I'm looking back on, it, I'm like, well, maybe that wasn't actually such a great idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, and I think this is the best You're, of course, you're just leading me with breadcrumbs to where I need to be, uh, as I discuss this. So thank you for, for listeners. Like, um, the inside baseball here is essentially Jason saying here, David, here's everything you need to actually give me a coherent answer this time. Um, so, uh, l l first on your topic about hard mile intervals at VO2 max effort, this research has just totally annihilated that as an approach that should be used. Um, so maybe the best example, my favorite example was a 2019 study in strength and conditioning research that looked at 85 elite athletes and their training over 75 years to progress or 75 years, seven years, uh, 75 years would be a much more interesting study. Um, and what they found is that, um, the lowest correlation of all the different training elements they tracked was with long, hard intervals. It was 0.22 correlation compared to everything else that was up around 0.6 volume of easy running, even short intervals, um, tempos, things like that was all around 0.6. And the reason probably gets back to what you're saying is that when you start to push these really hard efforts, you start to have an er erosion of the aerobic system, even as you might get temporarily faster. It's kind of an illusion. It's like a magic sleight of hand. Um, and that's backed up by all the research now when you're getting these physiologists that actually analyze athlete training um, at the elite level. So the way they do it in physiology studies um, for the listeners is they use a three-zone model. Um, Five-zone model is still of heart rate is how most athletes think in practice, but physiologists use a three-zone model because of ease of calculation. You can just think of it as zone one is easy, zone two is moderate slash threshold, zone one, or so easy, steady, zone one, moderate slash threshold, zone two, maybe up to critical velocity on the top end. Um, and zone three is everything above that. So VO2 max harder. Um, and essentially every single elite athlete across every single sport does something like 80 plus 80 to 90% in zone one, easy to steady, um, some amount in zone two threshold, and very little in zone three. There's still some, but it's not this huge proportion. And when you do hard VO2 max intervals, you end up doing a huge amount in that zone three uh, because they're so hard, they're so long. And so when we're talking about output from strides in very short intervals done periodically, you're actually keeping that percentage low 
So you're still building the aerobic system while you're getting all the adaptations that you would still get that would be beneficial from things like hard mile intervals at VO2 max. So it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too. And that's where these studies where physiologists get access to elite training can be so helpful. And I think it's also just very encouraging for most runners to hear because on the one hand, the potential for improvement gains is so huge. But on the other hand, it's not actually a high volume of hard work. You're talking about hill strides, which might be 15 or 20 seconds. You're talking about 30 second intervals. These are not long repetitions that we're used to. And it might be a bit counterintuitive for a lot of athletes because these are not the workouts that we're used to. We're used to long reps. We're used to focusing on endurance and our aerobic metabolism where, you know, if we were to do, you know, sort of like a classic hill sprint, you know, eight to 10 seconds, maximum effort up the steepest hill we can find. Is that maybe like the purest expression of mechanical output that, that you might <laughs> be able to, to do? Yeah. At least in my framework, I, I imagine there's physiologists out here. And again, another disclaimer, physiologists would disagree with some of this. This is more of a coaching perspective. Um, but there might be some physiologists that argue actually it would be like a deadlift or something. Um, but from a runner's perspective, I would say that it is, um, is your essentially short distance hill stride type ability. Um, studies do find that it essentially mirrors your plyometric power. So it is a good proxy for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think essentially where training theory has really evolved from the 1990s, let's say where, um, there were just so many hard intervals, especially in the US. And then you look at the US performance on the international scale, and it was not very good compared to where everyone's at now, is that we've had this influx of Canova style, Norwegian style principles, Mike Smith at NAU, like basically every coach now at the elite level does this very similar style where intervals are ever present, including long intervals, but they're much more intensity controlled. We're not saying go out there and go as fast as you can on every interval, experience the most pain you can, not just because that's not a fun way to live and will lead to injury, but also because of how that affects aerobic enzymatic activity and things like that, that will actually undercut the things you're trying to develop, like the lactate shuttle, your ability to reduce fatigue on the fly will get less efficient, even as you feel like you're going faster. So faster is not always better on your extended workouts. Like if, if your coach gives you 10 by kilometer, some big bulky marathon workout like that, the fastest you can go on that workout, let's say an athlete that's really advanced might be able to go 5k pace or even faster, depending on the rest, maybe even 3k pace for a beginner athlete who's not as good at buffering fatigue they will almost certainly have a very short window of progression and then slow down. Um, And where training theory is starting to coalesce is that, hey, if we can manage how much lactate is produced in that interval, but still get the mechanical benefits of going fast and hard through these shorter things, then we can throw it all together and have the real fast stuff support the aerobic growth. And that aerobic growth, if that is at the foundation of all you do, then you can just get faster at everything. And I'm not just talking about the marathon. I'm also talking about the mile, basically everything over 800 meters. That's exciting. I I love that (laughs) proposition. Just, ooh, wow, we can do both. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, that's the coolest thing. I'm talking about Norwegian training. That's the poster child for that is Jacob Ingebrigtsen, who's the Olympic gold medalist in the 1500, you know? Um, And so obviously it, it starts to get a little more complicated when you're doing specific training. Like he's definitely not just doing intensity controlled training with some strides essentially, um, right before his races. Like he does race into shape. He does do harder efforts. I'm sure. Um, even those, if those haven't been written about as much in the studies on him and his brothers, um, the point being all of the foundation 
of your ability to clear lactate at very high lactate levels is developed at very low lactate levels. Your mitochondria, how it works on the cellular level is improved in zone one and zone two, and then everything, the three zone model, and then everything you do really hard is designed more to make it translate into more efficient output mechanically rather than, hey, let's make you better aerobically because things like VO2 max are not going to improve for an athlete that isn't just starting out. I would love to talk more about, okay, what can we actually do in our training to Mm -hmm. accomplish some of these goals, to get these benefits? And, you know, you kind of hinted at this earlier when you said a physiologist might say that a deadlift is the truest (laughs) expression of mechanical output. And, And that basically hints at the idea that there are many ways to get similar benefits. And, you know, maybe we could talk about all those different ways, because obviously, you know, hill sprints or hill strides, things like that are going to be really helpful. And also just very specific to runners, you know, that's actually our sport. It's a very running specific way of developing strength, power and output. But there's other ways too, like lifting weights. So, you know, if a runner is listening to this, and they're like, okay, uh, David, I'm sold. I want to implement more of this in my training. What are, what are some like introductory ways of doing it? And then maybe what are some more advanced ways of doing it? I freaking love it. And I wrote down five ways to do it. I'm not sure if I should go through all of them at once, but I'll start, I'll start. And so one and two are connected. Um, and I know Jason's a big fan too, which are strides. So flat ground strides and hill strides. Um, I'm a big Here's a really controversial statement that uh, I've discussed with one pro athlete on the team who's in their late 30s and still performing at the top level. I've kind of decided that if this, this athlete can still hit like 345 minutes per mile pace on his fastest strides, he's not going to age. I'm just convinced based on his data because he keeps getting slightly better. Um, and so the point being, okay, on your fast, flat strides, your ability to hit something close to your max speed without sprinting. So you don't ever want to be fully sprinting. On hill strides, maybe the most direct example of mechanical output like we've talked about. Um, these can be anything from the 8 to 10 second types of sprint things that Jason's talked about to I am really partial to the 20 to 30 second where you ease into the pace, work into it, reach close to your max output while still using long distance form, do these two to three times per week, usually lower volume, like four to six by 20 to 30 second hills or flats, sometimes higher volume, especially in periods where you don't have as much stress. The Norwegian example of 20 by 30 seconds or 35 seconds might be a little overboard, but um, my co-coach Megan is really into the 10 by 20 or 30 second uh, stride input. So that's the first big cohort. I'll call that one and two, which is strides. I like strides. And strides are very introductory. I think anyone can get started with a 20 to 30 second stride, especially when you're easing into it. You can sort of feel your way around the stride and, and get more comfortable with it as you begin to incorporate them week after week. You don't have to go right yeah. into 30 by 30 second hill strides yeah. at like 99% effort. You know, we can we can take a gradual approach. You gotta be careful. You'll probably get injured if you do that. So you know, I think this is actually really important for athletes to think about. The way I like to describe it is very, Jason has made, I think um, you're the originator of this. I've shared a lot of like a pace chart of strides where you start relaxed, you work into it, you hit some, um, you know, close to max pace. Um, I I like it to be, I love that visualization of like easing into it. So make sure you ease in. You can always tear a hamstring doing this stuff. You're not trying to sprint like you're at the Olympics. Um, But an interesting wrinkle here, let's get back to 
discussing mechanical power really directly as it relates to hill strides is when you look at equations that calculate how much output is an athlete actually making per stride. Where that becomes maximized across an athlete's entire spectrum of activities is almost always within a hill stride. Um, so this is the place to start if you're on never done any of this stuff. One, it's lower injury risk. Um, but two, if you look at these calculations, maybe the most simple one that we're all accustomed to is Strava's grade adjusted pace calculator. Um, you can sometimes see athletes that might do a flat stride. Their peak, pa- peak pace might be five minutes per mile. This is a very fast athlete, let's say, that gets up to five minutes per mile in these strides. Their grade adjusted pace on a hill stride at eight to 10% grade might get to 410, 420. So they're actually putting out a substantial amount more power, at least in the context of these, you know, equations, which you generally use in energy consumption models, so are pretty direct. So um, I think you can essentially incorporate these willy-nilly. I want athletes to do it year-round. I don't ever base period everything else. Keep your speed high. If you keep your speed high year-round, essentially that's the big thesis that you know I'm bringing on this podcast. Your aerobic system is going to be more efficient. Um, especially if we're talking about this very short distance output where you don't have the same anaerobic energy generation processes involved that might, you know, slow down some of the aerobic processes we really care about. Yeah. And I want to address an objection someone might have to you saying we can do this year round. We can do this in the base phase of training. One of the reasons why we can do something this intense almost year round is because these sessions are so short. Is that right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you start to, if these were at all longer, I mean, even 30 seconds is starting to push it within base phase, but you know, if these were at all longer, yeah, it wouldn't have a purpose, especially for athletes that are, you know, elite and professional, um, then you might actually see some of the potential aerobic gains be reduced. But, you know, this isn't me saying this by any means, this is the core of like Arthur Lydiard and Renata Canova and basically every, every coach, um, that's working with athletes long-term has some element of this, even if it's not quite as direct as it might be for a general podcast listener that I'm trying to talk to, which is, Hey, we need to focus on this more than the outlier athlete who it comes naturally to might need to. Now I've also seen you on your Instagram page on the bike on an indoor, uh, stationary bike pedaling like a madman, trying to go as hard as you can, focusing yeah. on watts. Were you doing a mechanical output type of session? Can you walk us through what you were doing and why you were doing it? Okay. Well, I teased the five points that an athlete might want. That was one of them. So we'll make that number three, which is cross-training. Um, so when you look at all the studies on cross-training, um, essentially where it makes athletes stronger, here I'm talking specifically about lower body styles of cross-training, is in how their mechanical system, like the strength of their muscle fibers, things like that. So whether that's biking, elliptical, stair climber, all of this is wonderful because you can have the muscle fibers under lots of tension with little injury risk, with a high aerobic contribution. Um, So it is a really good element to work in if you like it. I'd say maybe half of the athletes we coach cross train in some fashion and half don't. It's by no means essential, um, but it's a great way to work this in, especially if you're at all worried about injuries. So the those three um, tools that I mentioned are really good, biking in particular. And maybe where this is most always striking to me is looking at some of the steepest climbs in the country, especially here in Boulder. Often you'll see athletes at the top of the historic lists of the fastest times at Mount Sinidis, let's say, this 1.2 mile climb that involves a major power focus. Like it is all coming from the quads and ass um, mixed with your aerobic system. You'll see cyclists on that list. 
these same cyclists that might not be able to break, you know, three and a half hours in the marathon or three hours in the marathon, depending on their running experience, are able to beat two fifteen marathoners up this mountain. Um, so it points out that hey, if we're just purely talking about muscular power and output, these sports are the best for it, even as they might not be great for the neuromuscular end of running faster. So um, the way that works in practice is basically any amount is good. I don't think strides and things apply in the same way. It's more just, this is a baseline way to make each muscle fiber stronger, which will make you then better at using these running principles when you get to running. And what I like about both the uphill strides and uh, the cross training is the fact that, look, if we're focusing on power, it, it is a very high intense activity. And so that does make the injury risk a lot higher. You know, like you said, you don't want to pull a hamstring, rip a hamstring off the bone because you were doing your first full <laughs> stride at max effort. Um, I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> not, not quite. I, I've just torn the muscle a little bit, not the, not the off the bone, but yeah, oh, it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I do like how if you're going to be doing this kind of work via cross training or doing it on hills where the impact forces are, are less and, you know, maybe it controls your range of motion a little bit more, that is the, the less risky way of going about this somewhat risky endeavor that we're talking about. And, and I think that's helpful to point out. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to look at some elite athlete training, like Natasha Wodak, who just set the Canadian record at 40. So this is a very interesting case study, right? This athlete set the Canadian record in the marathon at 40 years old. That should not be within our context of thinking about training the most possible thing. <laughs> and what she does is amongst normal marathon training, she does volume control because she doesn't um, want to do you know excessive amounts for her health. Um, she does a lot of elliptical. Um, and not necessarily going hard all the time, but it does point out that this allows you to incorporate more training. And it's not just for aerobic reasons where runners are aerobically capped, whereas cyclists can do 30 to 35 hours a week. The same runner doing high volume might be doing 10 to 15 hours a week, um, due to mechanical breakdown. This allows us to just kind of circumvent the mechanical breakdown while also strengthening the mechanical elements of, you know, your legs and endurance training more generally. Okay. So we've got strides, we've got three hill strides, cross training. What else yeah. is on this list that can help us become more powerful? Number four is, um, your climbing ability at PO2 max. We touched on this earlier. Um, and this is not something that needs constant reinforcement, but essentially it's an extension of the strides element. This is something that probably shouldn't be in your base phase or anything like that. This is more of a constant focus throughout build phases and specific phases um, where you don't want to lose sight of this even as your aerobic system gets stronger. So we like to call it VAM at VO2. Essentially, that just means how much um, elevation gain you can get per minute um, at a certain effort level. Um, and so what this correlates with is more aerobic power. So at the top end, we were talking about something that has no bearing on the aerobic system necessarily, though it does correlate with this variable, which then correlates with the aerobic system. So what that might look like in practice is doing things like five by two minute hills or um, elements like that within your training. Um, this can also be on flats. It can be velocity at VO2 max and things like that. Um, it doesn't need to be huge workouts because we're not actually trying to work the VO2 max variable. We're just trying to work the mechanical system around that effort level. So let's say 400s is a place a track runner might do this. You don't need to go out and do 20 by 400 hard. You don't want to do that probably. Like everyone that does 20 by 400 is doing intensity control most likely, but doing something like four to eight by 400 
in the context of a broader training plan that's focused on the aerobic system and doing it periodically can play a role in making sure your power at VO2 max doesn't erode. Because if you just do pure like stride t- style speed and aerobic development, like a traditional base phase, let's say, um, you will lack a little bit of your ability to translate it into longer distances. This is kind of the way to bridge that gap. Um, and you just sprinkle it in. You need very little, um, as the studies show basically across the board to start to see all the adaptations happen right away. Yeah. So this is like the, the hybrid option here where you're doing a little bit of both. It's, it's not super short and fast. It's also not threshold, which is longer and slower. It's, a little bit at VO2 max uh, for mm-hmm. that middle ground two to four minute rep range. Is that, or, or two so, to four minutes as a length of the repetition? I actually usually like to keep it shorter since we're focused on the mechanical system and not the aerobic system. Like a lot of the studies say, hey, if you're trying to improve VO2 max, you want to do want to have those intervals at that length, at that duration. Um, but I don't care about someone's VO2 max at all. So I'm thinking much more along the lines of, 45 seconds to two minutes, um, maybe three minutes if you're on a hill. Um, that That's a good place to kind of find these adaptations without the injury risk or risk of going too hard. Because again, VO2 max is hard, but it's not all out. And um, that's an important distinction is we're not saying, hey, go out, just freaking hammer yourself as fast as you can, because then you're exceeding even that variable. Um, so basically it's saying this is the element that some elite training programs might, I think, miss. That's my hypothesis Um, because they are working with athletes that are not limited at this variable because an athlete at that level often is self or selected by genetics to have a VO2 max that is off the charts. So their output of VO2 max is just good year round in the context of normal training. But for an athlete that is, you start to see this variable erode, even if you're doing everything else right. Um, And that's where the aging element comes in that this is kind of the... This is a year-round focus for athletes I coach who are 50 to 60 plus, even when they're in base periods, because this is the variable that wants to drop through the floor more than any other. Um, So don't do this if you're a pro listening who has an 85 VO2 max for men or a 70 for women. Don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about it. But for athletes over 40, for athletes who might be a little bit more VO2 max limited, think about it periodically. And I, by here periodically, I mean, maybe once every two or three weeks doing something to make sure that you're constantly reinforcing that variable. I like it. Okay. All right. Moving along. What, what other activities can we do that will, that will give us these benefits? Okay. And that leads us to number five, which you teed up earlier, which is strength work. Uh, a key part of it, uh, not an area where I am an expert by any means, has a lot of the things I've talked about on here. Uh, we have specific strength programs that are designed to improve like running specific um, output that we've seen in um, our cohort of data. I also really love more complex programs like those Jason puts online. They're freaking awesome. Uh, Basically, it's just saying you don't need a ton of strength, but don't neglect it entirely because those sorts of concentric and eccentric muscle contractions that you can only get from strength are really valuable. Um, So even if hill strides are plyometric, they're not doing everything. And these are some low hanging fruit you can grab along the way. So if you're interested in my stuff, you can Google mountain legs or speed legs. But if you're here, look at Jason's stuff because that is grade A. (laughs) Thank you, David. I I always, I always like to, you know, I I don't like to choose. I like to have both. I like to have my cake and eat it too, which basically (laughs) means I think there's place in any training program for 
what I'll call the pure mechanical output, power-oriented stuff like a very heavy deadlift. But I also think that as sport-specific athletes, as runners, we also need to take that very pure expression of mechanical output and also do it in a running-specific way. So ideally, you'd be doing both. You'd be doing the hill strides, the hill sprints, the you know the 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 shorter reps close to VO2 max, and you would be in the weight room deadlifting a lot of weight <laughs> and, and doing some more plyometrics and that kind of power oriented work. Because I think you know like we're talking about like strides are helpful, and then threshold work is helpful, but we also need something that bridges the gap. And I think yeah. some of the activities we've been talking about are the bridging the gap activities that take the pure expression of power and then make it a little bit more applicable to the running performances that we want on race day. So I I love this. I think we can do it, you know, the pure stuff in the gym, we can do it via cross training if we're particularly injury prone and we can do it in a very specific way and and in a perfect program, you know, quote unquote, perfect would probably be doing all of these activities. Yeah. And you know, this is a place where like maybe you and I would have slight differences in the context of take, give us the same athlete and we train differently is, um, you know, we are really big proponents of like minimal dose strength training where it's like, let's take it, let's make it really direct and relatively lower loading solely because one muscle fiber recruitment is a little bit of a concern with some athletes, especially faster twitch ones, but more it's just, Hey, stress buckets a little bit limited and us in our coaching philosophy had decided to go slightly like, Hey, let's not load that up with strength work for the most part. Um, though we do constantly reinforce it. Whereas I think, you know, looking at what you do, I'm, I love it. And I've directed athletes that do want to advance farther to resources like yours, because, um, you know, it's just a, essentially different ways of filling up the same stress bucket. We're such big fans of high mileage, even though it doesn't sound like that based on what I'm saying here in high aerobic volumes, that most of our athletes, we are capping out how much they can do in the gym, um, in their running training. And that has its own risks. And so we're just essentially saying, Hey, we're going to just try to minimize those risks. But I think that those trade-offs are really important to make, especially as we talk about this, which is in essence, one big trade-off that we're making aerobic versus mechanical. What I'm trying to argue is that they actually go hand in hand in that the mechanical elements feed back into the aerobic elements, make them more efficient. And as you do that, the aerobic system actually under, underlies the strengthening of your mechanical system if you do it right. Um, and that might be the coolest things in some of the studies is that once an athlete has a really strong foundation of an aerobic system, builds up in this way, their mechanical output, if they reinforce it, has higher potential for improvement, even at things like strength work. Some really cool studies came out recently that show athletes with a bigger aerobic base are able to progress more and adapt faster to the hard strength work they do. So it shows how everything's related. And when we're making trade-offs, we're making those trade-offs in this context that, hey, maybe it doesn't have to be a trade-off at all. Maybe we can all feed back in together. Well, yeah, this this self-reinforcing cycle is is what is maybe most exciting to me as a coach, yeah. because if we can successfully work on both your your output and your aerobic metabolism, it's you know, they help each other. And I think that's one of the most exciting aspects of this conversation is that, you know, if you can get your aerobic system to a high level and then you start working on this they help one another out. And it's just this, this wonderful environment that every runner wants to be in where it just (laughs) seems like, 
improvements coming left and right. And that's exactly where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love it so much. So like, yeah, as we get toward the end, I, I would just say, let's take a step back and at the very like minimum, if no one takes anything else away from what I said, um, a 2014 review in sports medicine looked at these very short stride-like things and it found on average a five to 8% improvement in the athletes that were participating across the, all the different studies. There was a review, a review article that looked at 318 participants. So clearly there's something there. The question is, how does that um, get extrapolated your long-term? And the jury's out on that. But if you're curious, experiment with it. Because I think you might see that you fall into this group that has immediate adaptations that then make you better at everything else. And that's when running can get so fun. Because even if you're not worried about speed, running when it takes less energy is just so freaking joyous. And you'll be out there with airplane arms more and having fun. And um, I think that that can be maybe the coolest feedback cycle of all is that introducing some of these playful elements that we've talked about makes running endurance running and aerobic running more fun and you get that fun cycle going and it's even better than the speed cycle. A hundred percent. I could not agree with you more on that. Now, my, my last question, and, and you've hinted at this a little bit when we talk about aging runners and how this mm -hmm. might be more important for the runner who's maybe a master's runner or, or even a grandmaster's runner in their fifties is what is the profile of runner? What type of runner might benefit from this kind of work the most? So it sounds like someone who's 19 or 20 years old probably doesn't have to worry about this nearly as much as someone who's 30 years old. Are we talking just uh, age as the, the type of runner who might be more interested in this? Or are there other kinds of runners who should be incorporating more of this into their training? Yeah. So age, definitely the biggest factor. Also muscle fiber typology, um, something I didn't really get into today because it's a little, you know, a little too complex in terms of describing the nuances of where that changes. But athletes that are slightly more slow, slow twitch probably need to worry about this a little bit more, a little bit earlier, though it depends if they're high VO2 max slow twitch, probably not for the same reasons we discussed. Um, so I would say age and muscle fiber typology and in general, you know, gender might play a role as well with female athletes need to, needing to worry a little bit more about top end speed um, than some male athletes, just given that the peak power numbers at baseline are a little bit higher in general for the average athlete across a cohort. So, um, but where it's definitely most powerful is in age, because that is the undeniable fact of physiology is that we are all fighting power losses really, really young, um, you know, from a really young age. And then it just gets more and more progressive with time. You can fundamentally alter the trajectory of your muscle fibers if you do this type of thing throughout your athletic life. And when they muscle biopsy athletes that are in their 50s and 60s, you can see totally different things versus sedentary counterparts um, or even athletes that aren't training in quite the same you know, uh, specific way. So um, this is, I think, th this is my big controversial theory, is that this is your anti-aging super weapon, is not just aerobic system, which still matters the most. It's constantly reinforcing the fact that just because you're getting older doesn't mean you're getting slower and less powerful. Um, and if you can embrace that, I think you can see progress from almost wherever you are. Um, obviously, we face all face physiological limitations. We're all going to die someday, unfortunately. But within those you know, broader constraints that are unavoidable, I think there's so much potential and so much fun to be had.
I couldn't agree more, David. And and I, I think this was just such a fun conversation for me because number one, I went into it not necessarily understanding the perspectives of power that that you have. And and I think the methods that we can use to gain more power are more varied than I initially thought. And I think that's very encouraging for runners. Um, and I know now I'm going to be adding in more <laughs> power-oriented work in, into my training. And I think this was really helpful for the aging runner and the performance-oriented runner who wants to continue to get better. And I've long said that stronger runners are better runners. And I think this really uh, affirmed that position of mine. And, and I think uh, we're, we're all better now hearing your perspectives <laughs> on this, David. So folks, go check out swaprunning.com or the Some Work All Play podcast that David hosts with his wife and co-coach Megan, who's who's been a separate guest on the podcast a couple of times. She's fantastic. <laughs> you know that, obviously. Um, but yeah, she's the she's the brains of the operation. I wish she was here <laughs> because I, I sometimes I feel like I'm playing telephone with the scientific expert. Um, so no, I appreciate you so freaking much, Jason. You're brilliant at what you do, and uh, to everyone listening, like you know, let's make this as fun as possible and channel love out there on the trails or roads. I think that whether it's this or whatever else you do, it's all about channeling that great joy. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you, David. And thanks for being here. Woohoo! And that's our show. Thank you for listening, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to keep listening to this podcast, support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First, hook yourself up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Drink Element, is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. And this does not have to be your first purchase. You'll get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Personally, watermelon is just amazing, but you can't go wrong with citrus either. Now, Drink Element makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, or colors. And I'm now in the habit of giving away boxes of Element at group runs around Denver and Boulder, and everyone loves this stuff. It can also be a really helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're running long. If you sometimes feel overly tired, or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness after long runs or workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat, with Element. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, I admittedly like to have some Element if I've had a few adult beverages and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll be able to get your free sample pack gift with your purchase and get your hydration optimized for the upcoming season. I'm also grateful for the support of AG1, the health and wellness company that makes my favorite greens superfood mix. I am a man of convenience and comprehensive daily nutrition is very simple with AG1. I personally struggle with eating healthy because... What can I say? I just like food that is easy and quick to prepare. So I am finding AG1 really helpful to fill in any holes in my diet. And there are some holes. One scoop gives me 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a green superfood blend, 
probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet, because let's be honest, I know I don't eat perfectly, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. And with three kids in school, I know I've got to support my immune system because I am no match for the germs that they bring home. But what I really love about AG1 is that it changes. Over the last decade, they have made over 50 different improvements to the formula based on the latest research to make these nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with third-party testing. And because AG1 is certified safe for sport, you know what's on the label is actually what's in the supplement. Go to drinkag1.com Jason to see the great offer they've put together for our podcast listeners. You're, you're going to get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment if you want to try it, or if your news resolution this year is to be healthier with your nutrition, you can sign up for a monthly subscription so that you can make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. This is my daily go-to, and I certainly don't travel without it, especially if I know I'm not going to be sleeping as well than I do at home. I want to make sure my body has what it needs to operate well, and AG1 delivers. Go to drinkag1.com Jason to sign up today. All right, that's our show, runners. Thank you so much for subscribing to the show. If you haven't yet, please click that little follow button at the top right of your screen. Thank you for sharing the show, using all our sponsor links and codes. Maybe you reviewed the podcast or you got a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com. Your support makes this show sustainable. My number one goal is to elevate your running, so don't ever hesitate to reach out to me through the Strength Running website, or you can message me on Instagram at JasonFitz1. Until next time.